So I'm admittedly going to start a bit awkward, um, but I feel led to. So I just want to say that um, as a husband, I find that I regularly struggle with placing demands and expectations on my wife that are unfair, and it leads to arguments between us that more often than not, I, I believe are my fault. And that as a dad, I really struggle with patience. I'm frightened by how quickly I can allow the circumstances of a given week to affect my temperament towards my children. I'm also frightened by how quickly I can pretend that that isn't true when in front of someone from my church. And as a friend, I notice that I have this tendency to somehow trace the conversation back to myself, placing myself at the center of most of my social interactions. And as a pastor, when you're invited to preach somewhere else, you have this thing in you that in all the different metrics, you want to do a good job. You know, you, you want the friends who invited you to be glad they did. You want them to maybe even invite you back. You want all the people that are going to have an opinion on you in a half hour or so to have the opinion on you. You want them to have. And so there's this conundrum of motives that's swirling inside of me, even at this very moment. And so I want to confess that to you at the very outset, because I sincerely believe that the greatest threat to what God wants to do in this room today is my ego. And the one way I know how to deflate my ego is just to confess. So I just want to begin with confession. God's power is made perfect in weakness. So if it's, God's, if it's God that we want, it is our insufficiency that we should brag about. And yet, I tend to want to portray myself as self-sufficient and winsome and having it quite together without trying very hard. And I'm, I'm just afraid that that isn't the case. And so I want to be honest with you about that up front. So now that we've made some room for God here, with that out of the way, I want to, um, wow, such an encouraging crowd. This is fantastic. I want to talk to you today about prayer, and specifically I want to talk about the sort of prayer that brings heaven to earth. And I want to let you in on a secret, and that is that when pastors are invited to speak at other churches, they play the hits. Like they tend to, to preach that sermon that went so well in their church a couple of years ago that they feel as if they're going to come in and light a fuse and then just back away and watch just occur in the room. And so I want you to know that I'm, I'm sharing something with you today that God has been working in my life for months and months and I haven't even shared with my own church yet. And the reason that I want to tell you that is because I'm not bringing you something from the past. I actually think I'm bringing a fresh word that is for this community at this moment. I think that there's going to be that sort of thing happen where vocabulary is given to a longing that many of you are feeling. And the fruit of tonight, I think, will be born in the many ordinary days after tonight. So I want to talk to you about prayer, and specifically I want to talk through this passage, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Many of you will be familiar with it. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So I'd like to begin by sharing three stories with you. First one. Sitting in a church meeting on a Wednesday evening next to Kirsten, my wife, a few months back, earlier this fall, and she got a call from her father. And so she decided to step out of the room to take the call, and, and she picked it up, and he just said this right off the bat, the doctor just left the room, and he's not going to make it. He had planned to say a lot more than that, but got choked up in that moment and couldn't get anything else out. 
And the context is that Kirsten's brother, Van, had been rushed to the hospital a few days prior. He had gone to a walk-in clinic believing that he had heartburn. And what he thought just needed an antacid turned out to be a torn aorta, meaning the primary valve in his heart was gushing blood internally. And he was rushed from a walk-in clinic and an ambulance to a hospital. And a couple days into treatment, the, the leading surgeon, one of the top five hospitals in our country said, we've done everything we can, and he is not going to make it. So we jumped on a plane from New York to Nashville where he lives as quickly as we could get there. We left the meeting straight away. And by the time we showed up, it was the following morning and we had a bit more information and there was a surgeon that was saying, look, we're going to perform this surgery, but statistically the surgery has a much greater chance of killing him than saving him. But he's dying anyway and this is the only option that we have left. And so I sat in this room with my family around me, head buried in my hands, and I just prayed That desperation and hope that comes together in prayer, it was all that any of us could do. Fast forward three days later, Van wakes up in a recovery room after a successful surgery. The lead surgeon who said he's not going to make it then comes into the room and says, I was in the operating room and I declared your brother deceased. And then a nursing student, whose only job was to hand me the scissors while I did the operation, began to pray for his life. And in that moment, I found the the tear that I had been searching for for five hours unsuccessfully, stitched it up, and he's going to make it. Miraculous. That's not my word. That's what the non-Christian, non-praying surgeon called it. Second story. A woman named Monica was a single mom with one son. She was a devout believer who would sing hymns and pray prayers over her infant son as he went to sleep each night. He grew up and had other ideas about the world. Uh, He became known in their city for public drunkenness and as a womanizer. He was quite intelligent, became a professor, and used all of his intellect to uh, combat the faith of his mother in the local university. But Monica didn't give up. She just continued to pray for her son. When he was 19 years old, she had a dream that she believed was God confirming to her that he would answer her prayers for her son. And so she intensified in her prayer. And then a year passed. And another year passed. And another year passed with no change. Nine years after that dream, her son was sitting in a garden by himself one day suddenly had an urge to open the very scriptures that he despised, encountered the person of Jesus, and surrendered his life to God. His name is St. Augustine, and he is potentially the most well-known father to the early Christian church. One more. Myung Song Presbyterian Church in Seoul, Korea, started a prayer meeting about 20 years ago with 40 people. Today, you can attend that prayer meeting if you're in Seoul, and there are 12,000 people that attended every morning. It's been split into three prayer meetings, 4 a.m., 5 a.m., and 6 a.m. They have to lock the doors of the church on the hour, every hour, because it's standing room only, and they cannot fit anyone else in. If you get there at 4.01 in the morning, you're waiting 59 minutes in the cold, dark winter morning just to get in to pray. Prayer is a compelling wonder, isn't it? I mean, God acting on earth in response to conversation with a human being, that's almost too much to take in. We don't allow ourselves to go there most of the time. Walter Wink said, the message is clear. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. Come on. Come on.
And at the same time, prayer is a confounding mystery. Because I'm aware that half the room is motivated by the three stories I just shared and the other half is confused or maybe even angered by them because you're already replaying your own versions of those stories and they didn't work out so clean. That's great that God healed your brother, man, but what about all the others? What about all those who have prayed the exact same prayer and don't have a pretty little bow to tie on their story at the end? If we insist on celebrating divine healing, then someone please address divine silence. Or look, man, I'm truly happy for Augustine and his mom. I really am. But why wait decades to answer a prayer and then answer it? Is there some combination of number of people praying plus method of prayer plus type of prayer that finally gets God's attention? Or is he just apathetic most of the time and she finally caught him in the right moment? And in what other context does withholding that sort of power for nine years make sense? And I guess it's inspiring that the Koreans are up before the sun praying, but what's come of it? I mean, can you give me any real metric to show that anything more is happening there other than like some good old-fashioned camaraderie and morning meditation? The question that so many of us circle around all the time is, do my prayers actually matter? Is anything going to happen in the world because I prayed that wouldn't have otherwise? Is anything not going to happen in the world because I prayed that was bound to happen if I hadn't? Do my prayers matter? Do they matter to God and do they matter in the world? The novelist Kurt Vonnegut weighs in on that question. I don't think it at all likely that God requires the ill-informed and contradictory advice of us humans as to how to run the world. If he is all wise, as you say he is, doesn't he already know what is best? And if he is all good, won't he do it whether we pray or not? And so look, for as many of us as are motivated by Walter Wink, at least that many just shrug our shoulders with Kurt Vonnegut. And so here is the space our prayers actually live, paralyzed between wonder and mystery. History belongs to the intercessors. Yes, that is our God. And then I begin praying. And the motivation I felt following the quote is covered over by all of my questions and doubts and confusion and past disappointment. Now, don't get me wrong. We keep on praying in this space between wonder and mystery. Every statistic that you look at will show you that the Western church, particularly in global cities like London or New York, is declining in every statistical measure, and yet prayer is remaining the same. People are leaving the church, but those very people are continuing to pray. According to Gallup research, this week, more Americans will pray than will exercise, drive a car, have sex, or go to work. Nine out of ten Americans claim to pray regularly. Three out of four say they pray every day. And if those statistics are true of New York, it can't be that different in London. We keep praying, but we don't pray in response to Jesus. We pray the safest kind of prayers. The passive, vague prayers that we can't actually tell if God even answers or not. So just as a thought experiment, I want you to think of everything you've asked God for in the last week. If God gave you everything you've asked for, what would happen? Save one or two particularly bold or naive people, the answer is usually very little. Because the space between wonder and mystery paralyzes us. Teach us to pray. That's what Jesus' disciples asked him. And then he started praying. And it sounded like this. Our Father in heaven, beautiful 
One God and Father over the whole world, all people. I love that. Hallowed be your name. Oh, a bit resistant on that one. Because hallow means to praise, and it makes God seem like, sort of like a narcissist. Like, does he need me to compliment him or butter him up before I... But, you know, whatever. I guess if he's that powerful and that loving, he deserves a touch of hallowing so I can get there. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where he loses us. Prayer is a way to meditate and let go? Definitely. Prayer is a centering exercise. Oh, it's essential. Prayer is a way to reform my character from the inside out. Absolutely. Prayer that really works. Like the sort of prayer that God says will bring redemption into the world and push back the darkness. The sort of prayer that actually tangibly affects the relationships I have and the issues that those people are facing. The sort of prayer that brings heaven to earth and our opinions splinter in all sorts of different directions. That's where he loses us. And he did everything he could to make sure he didn't lose us there. I mean, Jesus keeps saying this sort of thing. Here, let me just give you some quotes of Jesus on prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name... I will do it. This is pretty straightforward stuff. If you remain in me and my words remain and you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You see, if we really took the invitation of Jesus seriously when it comes to prayer, we'd have the same problem as that Korean church. But we don't. Because we don't buy it. Not entirely anyway. And so it's true that prayer is both a wonder and a mystery. But more than that, prayer is a profound invitation. In fact, I believe that on the other side of grace, prayer is the most profound invitation that we are offered in the Christian life. The on earth as in heaven sort of talking to God that I'm speaking to you about today is typically called intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer, meaning to mediate or to go between or to pass between two parties. In layman's terms, intercessory prayer means to pray for someone else. So we are talking about the sort of prayer that welcomes the activity of God into our messy world, our messy lives, our messy relationships, and our messy issues. And if we're going to see the true invitation that we are offered here, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning, to God's original plan when it comes to prayer. And so I want to give you the story of the whole of the Bible in four major episodes. Creation, recreation, decree. I'm kidding. I wouldn't do that to you. I would not cross the Atlantic to preach Pete's only sermon. Second time. It went better this time. He's going to stick around for the third. If you, you'll know that moment's coming, I could use some help. Um, really, here's what I want to give you, the story of the scriptures when it comes to prayer. Creation, fall, promise, Jesus. So first, creation, the life that God intended. All the way back in Genesis 1, in the very beginning, God created Adam. And the Hebrew word Adam actually translates as person or human. And in fact, many times when you read your Hebrew Old Testament, it would just say Adam, where we read the English word man or woman, spelled exactly like the English name. So if your name is Adam, your parents are extremely literal. But more importantly, 
the message of Genesis, the claim it's making is this, is this isn't just the story of God and one guy. This is the story of God and all of us. This is every individual story. Adam is a representation of all of us. And so when God created Adam, he was revealing his intended purpose for everyone who would follow. Do you know why you were created? Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over all the livestock and all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. So why were you created? To rule. And this isn't a manipulative, power-hungry sort of authoritative rule. This is an imago Dei, image of God, self-giving sort of authority. Human beings were set apart at creation to rule by God's selfless love. Intercessors participating with God in lovingly ruling the world. So another translation of this word rule would just say manage. God made Adam and Eve managers here on earth. They were his mediators, his middlemen, his intercessors. And you and I were created to be God's managers. We were trusted to call the shots. Now hear me clearly on this. God did not give the earth to people. But God did actually share the management of the earth with people. This is why it says in Psalm 115, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. It's why E.M. Bounds writes, God's plan is to make much of the man, far more of him than of anything else. Men are God's method. I do apologize for the patriarchal language. It's a touch old, but you get the point. God created you and I in his image with a creation to manage, to spread his loving image over every square inch of it. Beautiful start. Now, if you're paying attention, you should be asking, well, where did it go wrong? This brings us to episode two, the fall, the life we actually live. I mean, if God's plan was for us to rule over his creation, we have to admit that we're doing a pretty subpar job. The environment's falling apart, natural resources are being pillaged from the nations that need them most, and then overconsumed by those who have plenty. Half the world's dying of malnutrition, while the other half dies of obesity. Where did God's intentions for creation go so horribly wrong? The scriptures make the claim that all of the dysfunction that is around us and within, it, within us gets traced back to one great deception, that you and I forgot why we were created. We lost who we are. So Satan tempts Adam and Eve, they believe his deception, they act on that deception, and then pain and suffering enter the world. And when that happened, they forgot who they were. They forgot why they were created. The authority to rule God's creation given to you in Genesis 1 was lost to Satan in Genesis 3. So that's why Jesus calls Satan, not us, the ruler of this world. Listen to Jesus in John 12. Now is the time for the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now why were you created? To rule. And what title does Jesus give to Satan? ruler of this world. That's Genesis language. Jesus is unmistakably saying, the intercessor role I created you for in the first place has been lost to an enemy. And now look, just quickly as a side note, if a personified evil in a being called Satan just runs tingles down your spine, I want to remind you of the central claim of the Genesis story. This is the story of God and all of us. This is every individual story. We are all Adam. Our lives are all playing out in the collateral of the Genesis story. 
You and I live in a fallen world that we can see, but we lack the God-given authority to bring real, lasting, forever sort of change to. And we can arrive at that conclusion by reading the first few chapters of the Bible, or we can get there just by looking at the world around us. Because the world we actually live in as we sit here tonight is one of pain and suffering that we see lack the authority to change. And we feel that tension all the time, right? We feel it on massive social scales where we all agree that something is wrong and yet can't seem to eradicate it. Things like poverty or disease or hunger. And we feel it on a personal scale when we give up on overcoming an area of our lives and actually just give in to managing it because we don't know how to find true victory. And we even feel it on a deep internal level, like the anxiety and panic that follows us around, the obsession with accomplishment that we grade every week by, or the escapism that we go into each weekend through overconsumption or overbuying, or just another couple nights away in a quaint Instagrammable location outside of the city. That is the world we actually live in, and that is the collateral of the Genesis story. So a few years ago, one of my closest friends got in a motorbike accident that left him in a coma. And he eventually came out of it, but that was just the very beginning of the battle. Because somewhere between his head and his motor skills, there was a communication breach. So for instance, his brain was firing off, move your left hand, but his left hand wouldn't move. So he lived for a couple of months at a rehab facility with his brain being retrained to communicate with his body. And I'll never forget going to visit him for the first time and looking at him as this man who still had all of the intellectual capacity of a young adult living in New York City was being fed ice chips by a nurse simply because of a communication breach. He was trapped inside of his own body. And he's just sitting there looking at me, unable to move with terror behind his eyes, recognizing me, being able to track with everything that I'm saying, being able to interact with me in every way that he always has except that none of his body actually works. And what I felt looking at my friend Ricky, I think is what God feels looking at so many of us because we are trapped inside of a communication breach. We were made with an inseparable connection between God's mind and our action. We are called his body on the earth, but the line of communication has been broken. This is the world we actually live in, one where we see all the dysfunction, we have all of the intellectual capacity to know that it should be changed, and yet there's a communication breach that has gotten in the way. Episode three, promise, a guaranteed victory. So this is Genesis 3.15. What? We're still in Genesis? How long is this? Don't worry, I'll move quickly from here. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So this is God's first promise recorded in the scripture. He's speaking directly to Satan. And and the, the head is the biblical representation of authority. It's biblical imagery for manager or intercessor. God's very first promise spoken immediately after the deception was through human offspring. I will send one to recover the intended role that you've lost. God's first promise is I'll make you intercessors again. Episode four, Jesus, the living victory. 
So the prophet Isaiah speaks of Jesus' birth like this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. God is coming to the earth. The author is writing himself into the story, and that verse crushes it on Christmas Eve by candlelight. But it's actually significantly more than that. The government will be on his shoulders. That's authority language. He's coming back to recover the role that you lost. And at the very close of his ministry, after his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus says what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God won your authority back. He restored the very position for which you were created but lost. He stepped into the tension that we feel all the time and then cut away through it. He made you an intercessor again. And this brings us to the restoration of prayer. Yeah, all that's great, man, but what does any of that have to do with prayer? It has everything to do with prayer. And it gets cleared up by the most confusing thing Jesus ever said. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's a classic breakup speech, right? <laughs> Guys, it's better if I go. <laughs> it's actually the furthest thing from a breakup speech. Jesus is saying, I've, I've got a way to make us even closer. He's talking about prayer. He goes on to say, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. He's saying, you won't ask me anything anymore. You've gotten used to bringing your requests, needs, complaints directly to me in person. But I'm making a way for you to go straight to the Father. He's talking about prayer. Prayer is the pathway that we get back to God's original plan. Prayer is the way that we recover our role to rule, manage, and intercede in the world. Philip Yancey writes about this passage. Of all the means God could have used, prayer seems the weakest, slipperiest, and easiest to ignore. So it is, unless Jesus was right in that most baffling claim. He went away for our sakes as a form of power sharing to invite us into direct communion with God and give us a crucial role in the struggle against the forces of evil. God has shared his power with you. He calls you a co-manager of heavenly riches walking around on the earth. And here's how you take that from a biblical idea to an actual life living in your chest, prayer. Jesus is telling his disciples, until now you've never really prayed. Not like I designed it. You've never prayed in my name. In my name. That directly translates under my authority. You see, in my name was never meant to just be a tagline that goes at the end of our prayers. It is to take up the victory of Jesus. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray with recovered authority. The authority you were created with in the first place and has been won back for you by God. The communication breach has been repaired. It means that you have the very same access to God that Jesus has. You're not Jesus, but if you follow Jesus, then even as you sit here right now, when you utter a word to God, you stand in the heavenly courts with the very authority and status that Jesus has. See, when God won your authority back, he was winning prayer back. This is why Karl Barth says to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprise against the disorder of the world. 
So the way that we push back against the curse that's infected the whole world and infected every one of us is by prayer. And John Wimber says prayer is meeting the needs, sorry, prayer is meeting the needs of others on the basis of God's resources. So prayer is heaven's highest security clearance. It's where you go in, gather up what you can carry, and then bring it back out into the world. To pray is to say to God, hey, we need a bit more of heaven over here. Oh, oh, and there's some that's needed over this way. It's distributing God's resources all over London, among your coworkers and your flatmates and your neighbors and your friends, over pubs and soup kitchens and cafes, to business people, to stay-at-home parents, to students and to the unemployed, over high-rises and council estates and homeless shelters and prisons. Richard Foster describes it like this. If we truly love people, we will desire for them far more than is within our power to give them, and this will lead us to prayer. Intercession is a way of loving others. Intercessory prayer is selfless prayer, even self-giving prayer. In the ongoing work of the kingdom of God, nothing is more important than intercessory prayer. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That restores our world and restores you and me to the God-given identity that he always made us to carry. That is prayer. But probably the worst kept secret in the history of the church is that we don't really like prayer. I mean, we do it because we know that we should or because we know that it's good for us. And so at very best, prayer is the spiritual equivalent to eating celery. But what if, according to Jesus, you've never really prayed? Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Until now, you've never stood in the courts of heaven by my very authority and status. Until now, you've never entered the heavenly vault to plunder the riches that you might carry them out and distribute them into your city. Until now, you've never pushed back the curse with me. I've already won the victory. I'm just looking for people to implement the victory that I've won. Wait, that's prayer? I, I could see myself getting up a bit earlier for that. I could use my lunch hour differently for that. I might even skip a meal or two for that. But here's the part of this that really blows my mind, is that God doesn't need managers. You know, God's not overwhelmed running the world he created. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and completely outside of time. He's got this. But God chooses managers. That's how committed he is to passing redemption through our very ordinary hands that except in the most extraordinary cases, God has limited himself and his power and his mission to the management of imperfect, ordinary people like me and like you. I wonder what God is longing to do in the world, and he's just waiting for one of the managers of his household to ask him. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's look at it from the other perspective, and, and not from earth, but actually from heaven's perspective. What is actually happening when I pray? Revelation 5, verse 8 says, And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of all God's people. 
So you should have this image in your mind that God has stored up every prayer you've ever prayed. Every word you've ever uttered is stored in a heavenly bowl. And then Revelation chapter 8, if you continue reading on, says that when we pray, the fire of God, meaning the whole biblical imagery for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is combined with our prayers, forming a beautiful aroma, and then the bowl is tipped onto the earth. The image you should have in your mind of what is, do my prayers actually matter? Here's how much your prayers matter. There's a bowl in heaven where every word you've ever uttered is collected. And at the right time, the Spirit of God is combined with your intercessions. The bowl is tipped. It's poured out on the earth. And supernatural activity breaks into the natural world. That's what's actually happening when you pray. And, and that picture gripped me so much about six months ago that I just started spending every morning on the roof of my apartment building from 5 to 6.30 a.m. in prayer over Brooklyn. Because I started to ask myself that question I asked you at the beginning. If God gave me everything I wanted, what would change? And I realized that I was much more a prayer theorist than a prayer practitioner that I was paralyzed in the space between wonder and mystery. And suddenly I had a picture that was giving me such an invitation. And so I wasn't up praying like, come on, God, I'm doing my part. Do what you said you'd do. It, it was the joy of my life. The joy of my life is to be up with God early in the morning interceding. And the, if God gave you everything you wanted, what would happen? If God answered every one of the prayers you prayed in the last seven days, what would change in the world? And the only reason I ask you that is because you are a ruler in his household, a manager over heavenly resources. What are you doing with all that authority? We dream of a God who brings heaven to earth. God dreams of praying people to share heaven with. So I want to close here. If you were to ask me, Tyler, why have you become a pastor? I'm like, what happened to you? Like, did you grow up in some super weird family that just couldn't let go of a religious ideal? Or what sort of thing sent you on the trajectory to be this person? I would say the honest answer is prayer. That when I was 13 years old, I honestly wasn't very sure about all this Jesus stuff. I mean, if God is real, then I'd like all of this. But if he's not, I'd prefer to find out sooner than later so I don't have to spend so much time singing these mediocre songs. And then a mentor asked me this question that I've never been able to shake. He said, what do you think God would do if you walked a circle around your school every day in prayer, praying for your friends? I don't know. He said, why don't you find that out? And I liked that. And so every day, all summer long, when I was 13 years old, I walked a circle around my middle school. I don't know what you call it here. I was 13, whatever you call that. My middle school with a class directory in my hand, praying by name for everyone in my eighth grade class. I want to show you a photo of the building I walked around just so you can know how absolutely ordinary this was. There she is, baby. Brentwood Middle School. This dingy public school is the foundation of who I am. It's where God shaped me more profoundly than anywhere else. Because something changed in me while I was walking circles around this place praying. 
And in the eighth grade, I came back into school in the fall, and I started a Christian outreach ministry in my public school. It met at 6.30 a.m. on Wednesday mornings. Great first step. Choose a convenient time when you know people want to show up. What kid doesn't want to consider the meaning of life before the sun comes up, right? Then this is my entire strategy for leading the outreach ministry, is open the Bible to a random place on Tuesday night, pick out a paragraph, and then try to explain what it means the following morning. How strong a recipe does that sound to you for revival, right? But I prayed. I led this thing on Wednesday mornings. I went to school early on Tuesday and Thursday mornings, and I prayed in this place. This is a true story. My mom asked me to chill out with all the prayer stuff because she was having to wake up too early, too frequently to take me to school. A couple months into this outreach ministry, There were so many students coming, we had to move from a math classroom into the school's theater. And that year, about a third of my eighth grade class came into relationship with Jesus at 6.30 in the morning at their school through the potentially heretical sermons of a 13-year-old skeptic. (laughs) We dream of a God who brings heaven to earth. God dreams of praying people to share heaven with. Now, I don't have any family that live in that town anymore, but, and I haven't seen that building in 20 years until the holidays this past year. I was at my in-law's house, and they live about a half, half hour away, and so I decided to drive over there at 6.30 one morning just to pray for old time's sake. And I pulled up to the intersection where I could see this school, and I just broke down weeping in the car because I was looking at holy ground And I got out of the car, and I stood in the hidden place in this concrete slab where I used to pray by name for my friends early on Tuesday mornings. And I walked, and I sat in this spot just in front of the entrance to the school where I sat on Thursday mornings praying, and I saw people gather with me over the course of that year. And I walked the path that I beat into the ground around that school, And I just prayed through tears and a trembling voice because to you, this is a dingy old school building in need of renovation. And to me, it's holy ground. It's the place where I learned what it means to pray in his name. So much so that 20 years later, I can't hold myself together just being there. And one visit wasn't enough. I went back on New Year's Eve. (laughs) I finished up dinner out with my wife. Date night, we had dessert, and I was like, babe, you know what would be so romantic? You know the middle school that I went to that you didn't? What if I was praying at it when the clock turned to 2019? And she was like, you're the man of my dreams. So I went back. I went back. I didn't go back because I thought God would do what I wanted him to do if I did. And I didn't go back because there's some kind of magic in lining God up with our calendar. I went back because that's where I wanted to be when a new year began. I just wanted to be with the Father. And there's nowhere on earth that I feel nearer to the Father than that place. And you have to hear this. That night, I did not become any more his son. I didn't become any more his son than anyone that was out toasting champagne and dancing. God did not love me any more that night than he has any night before or since, but... 
in a world that for the most part rejects him, ignores him, and chooses any distraction over him. Imagine how much it must bless the heart of the Father to say, I choose to be with you, Father, over every other option. And prayer is about that. It's about being with the Father before it's about anything else. So don't talk to me about outcomes. Don't start there. Talk to me about presence. If we're going to talk about prayer, don't you dare come at me with outcomes first because prayer is about presence before it's about anything else. It's about being with the Father. So there I am. I'm walking a circle around my middle school on New Year's Eve. And the only prayer that I could pray, the one that was coming up in me again and again, was this simple prayer. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. What I saw you do here in this ordinary place in the lives of ordinary people, do that again, this time in Brooklyn. Do it again, this time in London. Do it again, Lord. We dream of a God who brings heaven to earth. God dreams of praying people to share heaven with What might God do if we actually believed that? Who might you become? What might London look like? Why don't you find that out? Will you stand with me?